0: radio program.
2: Broadcasting live from Hutchinson, Kansas.
3: Well, I'm sitting here with a linguist. I had, I linguist. had no
4: idea. <laughs> I, I didn't that. know you were But I didn't know that you were a wordsmith.
2: <laughs> Call Jiggy right now. 267-22-JIGGY. Hey, Jiggy, what's happening, man? Must be <laughs> that uh, David Bowie song. Jiggy it's guitar. Jeff, it's a great name, and thanks so much for being the show. I'm, I'm Mike Massey, and uh, you know you can catch me on Jiggy Jag TV and
3: uh,
4: see a few of my tricks up there. Thank you very much.
3: Jiggy Jaguar. I never knew what freedom was
2: until I saw you lose yours.
4: We are live today here on the world-famous Chicky Chekwire radio program, coast-to-coast and border-to-border on TuneIn, iTunes, Radio Loyalty, Stitcher, and, of course, 50-plus AM FM stations across the country and around the world iHeartRadio as well we've got uh, best-selling author Dan Perkins on Skype we also have uh, our fabulous uh guest today Dr. Jack Caravelli and we're going to be getting a hold of Don Mazzella in our next segment and uh, we're going to try to get him in with us but we'll take this uh, first segment we've got our good friend Dr. Jack Caravelli he's got his new book out The Age of Hatred: ISIS, Iran and the New Middle East and uh what, what, is, what is fun about this is the fact that Dr. Caravelli's written a, written a book about the Middle East, several of them. Dan has written several books about the Middle East. So let's start there. Um, first of all, Jack, uh, I'm going to let Dan have the floor here and uh, ask you a few questions, and then uh, we'll, uh, we'll take it up here to our, to our first break and, uh, and try to get dawn on. So, Dan, uh, you have the floor, my friend.
3: Thank you. Tell me about your new book.
2: Easy question, Dan. Uh, the,
5: the book well, is,
3: uh, I, I try to start out with an easy one. Then I, then, you, then you won't know when the zinger's coming.
5: Uh, okay, well, I, I've been warned. Matt, I answered the question. Uh, the, the book is an attempt to provide, I guess, a, a broad context for the just the incredible chaos in series of events that have just uh, rolled across the Middle East. Um, one of the things I, I, I wanted to talk about was not only the, the the terrorism problem, which, you know, we're all too familiar with, uh, but also the situation in Iran. There's a chapter on what Iran has been, what it is now, after the nuclear deal. But I think as much as anything, Dan, um, I really wanted to tell a story that, uh, you know, for, you know, the, the average Americans who, you know, go about their lives and don't spend their waking hours worrying about the Middle East, I wanted to provide a readable overview of what was going on, but I also wanted to make the point that one of the real problems I have with the Obama policy in the Middle East has been that uh, regardless of what one might think about the way Obama has dealt with our opponents, uh, there's a lot to criticize there, we've also really, uh, I think, lost a great deal in our relations with our allies, uh, beginning with Israel, of course. But extending uh, to those in in Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, now, you know, those countries certainly have problems and we have some problems with them. But if you look back over what Obama found when he came into office and the situation between us and those countries now, I think an easy case can be made that we lost a great deal of influence, a great deal of respect, uh, and it really matters in that part of the world. So you know, I wanted to just kind of pull these different themes together and, uh, and, and try to tell that story, as you know, particularly as we're coming up, obviously, to uh, to our elections in uh, November.
3: So let me uh, let me ask you a little harder question: How much of the turmoil in the Middle East, in in Syria, and in Iran and Iraq? and uh, Libya, and Egypt, and Saudi Arabia. How much of that do you lay at the feet of Mrs. Clinton?
5: Well, you know, at the end of the day, Dan, as you know, it's, it's not the Hillary Clinton foreign policy, it's Barack Obama's, but having said that, you know, I think we can, again, you know, take a snapshot of, you know, what she found when she came into office, and, you know, let's, let's look at it, you know, four years after her, you know, after, you know, after she departed four years from taking the job, um, you, know, we, you know, we certainly, uh, again, saw a deterioration of relations. And, and I think uh, there's probably some evidence that she may have, in some cases, pushed Obama harder than he was ready and willing to go. Uh, I think some of the people in the administration at the time, you know, I'm thinking of Leon Panetta, I'm thinking of Bob Gates you know, who were, you know, our defense secretaries, you know, had a pretty good relationship with her. Uh, But I think at the end of the day, you know, she was, again, as Secretary of State, you know, she can take credit for whatever she wants, but apropos to your question, she also has to take responsibility. And, again, although the buck stops on Obama's desk, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that she was, you know, she certainly went along, signed up, uh, and I think she probably has some serious blood on her hands from Benghazi just as a start. So i, I give her, you know, at best a, a, a D if we're giving out grades, but, uh, you know, that, that's probably the best I could say for
3: her. <laughs> a failing grade is the best you could say for her, okay. <laughs> You're obviously not, not, not her advanced man. Uh, let, no, let me let no, me, so me go not, on I'm with that. that um, well <laughs> see, I, I happen to believe that the... Uh, About, if we may remember that Uncle Joe, as I call him, uh, Joe Biden, said uh, some time ago, several years ago, that he believed that Libya was going to be the hallmark of the Obama administration about our relations with the Middle East. And when Muammar Gaddafi had surrendered all of his nuclear weapons and basically. De-neutered himself, uh, from what I can gather and read, it was Hillary Clinton who pushed Obama for regime change to get rid of Muammar Gaddafi. But it was clear, and the president even said so on on uh, on Fox News several several months ago, that that was a mistake because we had no idea who was going to come in once we took Gaddafi out. That shows a, a, a significant shortcoming not only on the President of the United States and his foreign policy, but also his chief foreign policy person, Hillary Clinton. The same could be true about Egypt when they wanted to have regime change and get rid of uh, the leadership in, in in Egypt, what they tried to do in Iraq, um, so that the the... the Obama administration is rife with example of trying to create a regime change, and none of it ever working. Uh, I think it's also fair to say that the president saw his role on numerous occasions to try and tell the rest of the world how they were supposed to behave. For example, in the most recent British election, he went to Britain on his farewell tour and basically told the, Ameri- the the British people, if you vote against this exit, you're going to go to the back of a queue in terms of trade with the United States. Yes. Earlier on that tour, he was in Saudi Arabia trying to tell the king what he needed to do. And he's done it all over the world. He's the one who has decided he knows what's best for the world and he makes no compunction about telling the rest of the world and the leaders what they should do. Hence your observation at the beginning of your presentation about how we have lost prestige because we're no longer a partner, we're seen as the major critic against all the regimes in the world.
5: Uh Dan, I, I think uh, and I hope that the audience was listening carefully to what you laid out, because uh, as far as I can recall, the way you described these events, including what Joe Biden said and when and, and Hillary's, Clinton's reactions, as well as the president's, are spot on. So I think you've you've really captured that, you know, quite well, and I, I mean that. Uh, the, the, point, the point is well taken. I, I fully agree that w- one of the real failings, of this administration is, is what you just described, which is really a, a belief of trying to lecture the world, of trying to see the world through, you know, the, the prism that, you know, that Obama and his uh, senior aides, you know, have the uh, sort of moral high ground, as well as the best approach, not only for ourselves, but certainly for those in uh, the Middle East. Uh, and, and it just hasn't played out that way. And one of the The real obligations uh, from, you know, the time that I served on the White House staff, and when you have the senior officials, you know, maybe what they owe the president more than anything is some really clear-eyed judgment in terms of saying to the president, Mr. President, if you want to choose option A or option B, you know, have we thought through the consequences, the, the ripples in the pond, and... You know the the examples you cited, Dan. It's you know it's crystal clear that uh, you know Obama did not get that advice, or at least did not listen to it very often from his senior aides, including Hillary Clinton. Uh, but at the same time, he certainly felt that his sort of uh, moralistic approach to the world was, you know, would be a problem solver. But on the on the contrary, it was uh, it was the cause of a lot of problems and. I think when he leaves office in a few short months, uh, he will probably go down as, you know, one of the worst foreign policy presidents in U.S. history. And, you know, uh, that, that's, of that's course, on his head first and then on the heads of the senior people around him.
4: We have to take a, we have to take a quick time out here. When we come back, we're gonna, we're gonna try to get Don Mazzella in here. We've got Dr. Jack Caravelli with us today. We also have Dan Perkins and, uh, we're gonna put Dan on hold on Skype and, uh, we're gonna put, uh, Dr. Jack Caravelli on hold on the telephone and, uh, we are gonna try to get Mr. Mazella in here to join the action. We've got more coming up here on the world-famous Cheeky Chaguar radio program. Download our app, CheekyChaguar.us. We've got more coming up. <laughs>
0: This is Attorney Advertising. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision. should not be based solely upon advertising. Kurt and Brad Honold are responsible for the content of this advertisement.
1: Attention, women. If you had a transvaginal mesh, bladder mesh, pelvic sling, or bladder sling implanted for pelvic organ prolapse or stress urinary incontinence and suffered serious injuries or complications, please call 800-625-0379 now as you may be entitled to a cash award. If you've had a mesh or sling device implanted, and suffered serious injuries or complications such as device removal or replacement surgery. Call 800-625-0379 now for a free consultation. One manufacturer has offered to pay $830 million to women harmed by these products. If you had a transvaginal mesh, bladder mesh, pelvic sling, or bladder sling implant and suffered serious injuries or complications, please call 800-625-0379 now. Cases are being settled right now. So call 800-625-0379. That's 800-625-0379.
3: Welcome to the Unlock Your Wealth Update. Here's Heather Wagenhalls.
0: Yes, rich people can make mistakes too, but the following tax mistakes are costing the wealthy a pretty penny. So if you are in the rich category, then lean your ear this way as we highlight these tax mistakes you'll want to avoid. First, avoiding charitable giving opportunities to lower taxes. One example of such a tax reduction strategy is a business owner who donates an office building or other rental property to a charitable foundation. Tax experts weigh in saying reminding the rich failing to utilize charitable tax giving strategies actually Deprive you of benefits. Lack of awareness about investing tax laws. For the most part, wealthy individuals will hold large investment portfolios. But ask yourself, who's managing these portfolios? Are they focusing on both growth and minimizing taxes? And missing the IRA required minimum distribution? There's a formula to determine the minimum amount that must be withdrawn each and every year. For more great resources to help you create unlimited wealth and happiness, visit our website at CrackingYourMoneyCode.com. I'm Heather Wagenhals. Now go out and unlock your wealth today.
4: Welcome back to our big broadcast. We're going to bring Dan Perkins back in here. We've also got, uh, Donald Mazzella has joined us, and we also have the fantastic Dr. Jack Caravelli, whose latest book, The Age of Hatred, is out on Amazon and it is doing very well. And, um, Dan, uh, you, you were, you were making a point before we went to break. I want you to finish up yeah. on that point, and then I want to have Doctor Jack Caravelli give us his thoughts in this segment on the Brexit situation, and then we'll uh, we'll go around the room here and let everybody chat about that. So go ahead, Dan.
3: Okay, um, Doctor, I was what I wanted to say was that that as we discussed a moment ago, the uh, Joe Biden's comment about um, Libya being uh, the the hallmark of uh, Obama's. Diplomatic policy. And your comment was that he may go down in history as one of the worst foreign policy presidents in ever, ever. I I would suggest to you, doctor, that there's, there's a very, very interesting statistic that I found that fits very nicely into your commentary. And I want you to feel free to use it, even though you, even though I found it first. I did a Google search and I asked the question, in the seven and a half years that Obama has been president of the United States, how many times has he, met, has he met with his full cabinet? Because you made the point, you'd hope that his advisors were giving him information. One of the places in order to get that advice is in a cabinet meeting. In the seven and a half years that Barack Obama has been president of the United States, he had a grand total of three Full cabinet meetings. See, I suggest to you, Doctor, that not only is he not good on foreign policy, he's not good on domestic policy because the same attitude that we just discussed about the way he thinks covers the way he thinks about everything. He is the all knowing answer to all the issues. And so he doesn't need cabinet, he doesn't need advisors he makes the decisions on his own because he is uh, he has the ability to make those decisions on his own without the need of other people so his narcissism about his belief that he is above all of us he is the ultimate intellectual which were rejected in the UK vote last week and i believe will be elected will be rejected in november he is the ultimate global intellectual who doesn't need anybody but Barack Obama to seek advice and counsel. And so his mistakes are, are a function of his narcissism and his lack of input from the people around him.
2: Uh, Come again, what, really <laughs> <laughs> so what do you really think?
4: Dr. Caravelli, your thoughts on that? Well, I, th- I think Dan's got it right. I mean, it's a,
5: it's a shocking number that he has been so cavalier, as Dan put it so well, uh, about, you know, whatever expertise was around them. Um, You know, I think it's really a shortcoming. I think related to that, the only thing I'll add, because I don't think there's much to, you know, that really needs to be said, Dan hit the nail on the head. The one point I would add is one of the things that troubled experienced people like Bob Gates, who has served eight presidents in various ways, Democrats and Republicans, uh, Gates, who served at the White House, among other things, in an earlier part of his career, he was very, very troubled by the fact that the political advisors around Obama, like Valerie Jarrett, were so influential uh, and weighed in so heavily on national security and foreign policy decisions, which in every other administration, Democrat or Republican, by and large, just was unheard of. So Obama liked the small group around him. Didn't like his uh, senior people in the uh, in the uh, bureaucracy very much. And you know, you you know, you get uh, the results that you that you put the effort into. And he hasn't put much effort into our foreign policy. And you know, we see the results today.
3: He hasn't put any effort in domestic policy
5: no, but he has been playing a lot of golf
3: and playing a lot of basketball, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and doing and doing a lot of fundraising. So he's helping to travel in yeah. But but he, he basically he is he he is as I said a few moments ago. I believe he sees himself as the ultimate intellectual in the world.
2: Well, to bring this conversation around. Uh, um, his decision to interfere in the British election uh, decision uh, was absolute mistake, and no president prior to his would, would have been permitted to do such a thing. It just was the wrong decision, because uh, a statement like that has a losing side. And you don't make statements that you have a losing side. But yeah. the, pro-
3: the problem, Don is that he believed that he could sway the British voters to his way of thinking and uh, and he did exactly the same thing that Cameron did and all of the other leaders government leaders who were for staying in the in the EU they used intimidation and their their eliteness in trying to force the decision. And it didn't happen this time. And they're all up in arms because how, how is it possible that the 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 that the common man in England could do anything against the elite in England? And that's what we saw was the downfall of the elite. And I think that that's, that is the beginning of a crescendo that's going to go around the world, including here in the United States. The American people
2: they're, they're absolutely have... Right. Um, the interesting thing I'm, uh, is that there's a book written almost 50 years ago called Ragtag and Bobtail and in that book it was talking about how the American people the colonists really had very few leaders amongst the that uh, had a successful re- revolution and I'm really saying that that may be the case uh, today uh, around the world I'm reinforcing your point
4: now uh we've got uh, we've got Dr. Jack Caravelli with us today. We've got uh, Dan Perkins from The Hill dot com and Don Mazella uh, from SB Digest. Uh, doctor, what 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 did I know that you do a lot of business and you go back and forth between the United States and the United Kingdom? Uh, what were your thoughts on this? And then I'll let Dan and Don jump in and uh, and ask you some questions.
5: Yeah, uh, happy. Uh, I was in London. In April, James, uh, after the Obama visit, uh, and my reaction was the same as our friends here—that you know they were, you know, shocked by the arrogance of it. I was in London, also in May, uh, and on both occasions, talking to a lot of uh, British colleagues uh, that I've known for years and years, and, and many are, uh, you know, you know, many like Obama, and but everyone I talked to. You know, I didn't even have to raise the issue. They basically, you know, <laughs> wanted, wanted to shoot, uh, shoot me, uh, who had nothing to do with it, of course. And, uh, you know, their, their reaction was the same as what Dan described. Basically, you know, why in the name of God does an American president think that he can come here and lecture us? And, and as I said, a lot of that reaction came from people that are, were well-disposed to Barack Obama. So there was real resentment on what Obama did. Extremely heavy-handed. On a broader note, um, you know the, the the vote last week, the Brexit vote, uh, about 52 to 48 to leave, uh, is it's historic, uh, it's unprecedented. Uh, we've never had a nation vote to leave the EU. Uh, it has obviously thrown both the political class, uh, as Dan was saying, and certainly the financial markets in the turmoil. One of the things that I find really unfortunate about it is. You know, the way, you know, even our newspapers, uh, The New York Times, The Washington Post, you know, they're all acting as if the sky has fallen. Well, the sky has not fallen. You know, Britain is still there. It hasn't moved. Uh, It it is still a very important ally for the United States. Uh, The British are an extremely resilient people. Uh, There are a lot of uncertainties, because this really is uncharted waters. Uh, But, you know, for, again, the financial markets, uh, and, you know, the, again, the media elite, you know, to think that, you know, the world is going to end tomorrow because of the British vote is, is nonsense. Uh, you know, there's a lot to be done. Uh, no one's quite sure how it all plays out. But beyond that, uh, you know, the sun will come up tomorrow. Britain is still an <laughs> ally. Uh, its economy hasn't collapsed. You know, it's probably going to need to choose a new prime minister. But, you know, that's, you know, anybody that's truly shocked by those results,
4: you know, hasn't been paying attention. Don, what do what, what uh, you think about all this?
5: Uh, well,
2: uh, uh, on election night, uh, I was talking to some people in Washington, and or uh, was someplace, and they asked me what I thought, and I said, 5248, they're going to leave the Union. And uh, I was met with great derision by where I was. But it's uh, and don't forget, the number is 52 point something, uh, which also tell. And all people are talking about is 52. It's actually closer to 53, um, 47. Uh, it's a small point, but, uh, again, it's amazing how things lock in. But the other point I'd like to, to make, uh, and uh, Dr. Cabarelli did it very well, the, uh, the sun is going to rise tomorrow. We're all going to be... Uh, uh surprised at how well Britain comes out of this and and Britain comes and also uh if you look at the results as I've looked at them uh you can clearly see that the middle class voted the the middle class voted to leave because the middle class was left behind and what do we have here in America but the middle class left behind it doesn't bode well for the uh, the democratic nominee and uh, can I go on and, and put a point um about polling yes. uh, Dan uncovered something that CNN did last week about how they chose their respondents and also um, which uh, showed that they were kind of biased and also the English polls, I've, I saw the first The pollsters are beginning to believe that they've made a terrible mistake and I'll give you just one that's mentioned here in the New York Times uh, tomorrow, uh, Sutherland which is a heavily labor uh, district voted for succession very heavily and that was the, the middle class that uh did the steel did the coal and now has nothing that tells you something about what's going to happen in november and i'll stop there and let dan co- come into it
3: so doctor let me let me give you a couple of, of twists and turns um i did a show uh, I, it's the first time it's ever happened to me in in uh, probably over a thousand interviews that I've done over the last two years. I actually shocked a host who didn't know what to say. So um, uh, this is what I said this morning in an interview. This vote, and I have a piece pending right now. Uh, They're looking at it. uh, Everybody's looking at it, trying to figure out who's going to run it. But I have a piece pending right now that basically says that this vote that took place that was the middle class rebellion against the elite and the political leaders who had forgotten where they came from. I said in the piece that I wrote over the weekend that I expected more countries in the EU to be emboldened because of what happened by the Brits to take a stand against what was going on. And what was going on was the loss of their country, their identity and their culture, becoming homogenized out of Brussels with a bias or a tilt towards Muslim. I said that we are possibly experiencing two very, very important things as a result of this Britain voting to leave. One, the very possibility that there will be the end of the European Union, because I believe if eight more leave, uh, the only strong nation left would be Germany, and I don't think the Germans want to carry the load for the remainders. So I think we could be seeing the end of the, the beginning of the end of the EU, but more important than that, the end of a 40 year experiment of political correctness in the world. I believe that what happened and all you have to do is look at what's happening for the people who wanted to stay. There was an article in on the BBC website that a group of elites have decided that they want the British Parliament, they want 1,450 members of the House of Commons and the House of Lords to overturn the vote of the people because... They believe that the middle class wasn't smart enough to make the right decision, and it's their responsibility to make it on their behalf. It is the height of egotistical behavior that they have now decided, because they didn't like the outcome of the vote, they must take control and try and force the British Parliament to overturn the will of the people. It is absolutely insane, and it's representational of what the problem was, not only in Britain, but what is the problem here in the United States. We have a small minority of people who see themselves as elites and politicians who pay no attention to the people who who elected them to the office, and as a result, they want to decide what's best for us as opposed for us deciding what's best for us.
5: Uh, Dan, let me make two points. This is Jack. Uh, number one, uh, I, I think, you know, you're, you're absolutely right, and I'll give you an example. Uh, one of my very good friends is Dr. Liam Fox, who is a member of parliament and the former British defense secretary. Uh, he was on the side of um, of Britain getting out of the EU. He was one of the most outspoken, and he is a, uh, a Tory party member in Actually, might be talked about as a future prime minister. But uh, Liam told me when we were together uh, at the end of last month that, and this really shocked me, that over half of the laws that the British government has to enforce were laws promulgated not by the British Parliament but from Brussels. And that really put Liam into a very high orbit, among, among other things. One of the ironies of all this, as Dan and Don both know, is, you know, David Cameron has pulled the pillars from the temple and now everyone seems shocked, you know, that, that, that this is happening. That's nonsense. One of the real ironies of this is Cameron never had to have held a referendum in the first place. He did it a few years ago, said he would for political purposes. Uh, He said if he was reelected, which he was uh, in May last year, that he would hold this referendum. Well, he said that on the belief, I am sure, that, you know, this day would never come and, again, that the elites would prevail. But democracy is a funny thing, and I think what Dan and Don both described in terms of just the middle class in the U.K. fed up with not having, you know, real say in their lives – Uh, On many issues, uh, really led to this vote, and you know, does it have uh, a a resonant quality in America? Yeah, I I think what the guys are saying, James, is you know is is quite powerful, and you know may may well be true. Now, you know, so you know there's differences, of course, but uh, you know, uh, David Cameron set all this train wreck in motion. Uh, He gambled. He miscalculated. Now he's probably going to be out of a job, and his nation is moving in a direction that uh, he never wanted it to go. So aside from that, his judgment is just slightly skewed. But he did the
2: end yeah, of would... he, he resigned. Go ahead, Don.
5: Yeah.
2: He was... You know, uh, you, you, know you, talk about it, uh, you talk about the people in this thing, but the only guy that out, comes out of this thing uh, looking good is Cameron. He made a uh, not like his decision, but they said they rejected them. I'm, I'm leaving. I I can't feel, uh, do it. I mean that, uh, you know that's the old British way of doing things, and, and we should we should all take a lesson from that. Absolutely.
3: I, I would I wouldn't disagree with that, Jack. I, I saw a report that was a little more aggressive than what you your friend told you. I, I, I saw a report that said that over sixty percent of the laws on the books today. In England were dictated by the EU and the belief was by a lot of the people was that the EU was going to continue to to, to change and change and change and I think that part of the problem was um, and we heard it yesterday in our one of our news programs but what happened was that the British people saw the allocation of the Muslims coming in from the Middle East that they that the EU and Brussels was allocating the refugees to various EU members and there was no there was no say in it so that at that point in time the British people I believe felt that they lost control of their nation and they were no longer going to be a sovereign nation they were going to be under the control of the central government of non elected officials and bureaucrats. And that's what we're seeing and hearing in the United States. And I just think that it's it's an issue. I if you if you had a chance, I, I watched it on the BBC and I found myself as the evening went on, I closed my eyes so I wasn't watching what was on the screen, but I was listening to what was being said on the television by reporters and by people on the streets who were being interviewed. And what you were hearing, what you could hear, were the same things that are on the streets in America today, the same issues of a central government gone crazy, the same issue of illegal immigration, the, the massive import of, of people from around the world destroying their national health system. And there, and and everything else, you know. There was a, a a reporter yesterday who was being interviewed, I believe, from the New York Times. I, I, I could be wrong here. On one of the news shows over the weekend, he made. You know, he is a liberal Democrat reporter. He said, and I'm 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 going to. I think I'm doing it as, as close as I can. But what he basically said is the mistake that we have made in the United States, meaning us, the liberal side, is we brought too many people in too fast. We brought too many people in too fast, and the American people have rejected it. And you know, if you look at all the polling data, well the one piece of polling data that's most important to vast majority of Americans, and that is, who's going to do the best on the economy? Mr. Trump buries Mrs. Clinton. And I think that polling data is correct. And that's what this election is going to be determined. This The the throw-off of this collapse in the financial market, which I agree with you, Jack, is going to be near-term because I've been in this business of managing money for 43 years, and I've seen a lot of in my life. And I think that this is this is a knee-jerk reaction, um, but I do believe that that it will pass. London Bridge will still be there. The Tower of London will still strike the hour, and the Queen will continue to reign. Um, I, I believe that that the, the, we are experiencing an arrogance of unbelievable proportion on the part of the elite around the world who decided over the 40 years of the European Central Union, with the expansion of political correctness, that they need to rule the world, from which you're on about.
2: I, you. I couldn't agree with you more, Dan. Uh, you, you put it uh, uh, right. And if you look, look at the data uh, that's that's coming out now from from the various camps, um, this is putting some, uh, in trouble. If you notice... She has not really made a definitive statement about uh, the election because she doesn't know what to say. Uh, uh, she's still trying to figure it out uh, and uh, President Obama is as well. but we will we will see this uh, further on. Uh, uh, if someone said to me today that uh, the, the only thing that could stop uh, England from going out going out and succeeding is if the Queen died in the next six months. So that's the only caveat I put out to all of this. And,
3: uh, the but the monarch, the monarch, the, the, the if the, if the uh, I, I, I'm going to disagree with you. Not that I want the Queen to die in the next month, six months, but if she were to die, Prince Charles might even abdicate and give to give the crown to his son William and Kate. And what a wonderful couple to re energize the British economy. And the British people about being British, wonderful.
2: I couldn't agree with you more. I think Charles has waited long enough. They should at least give him a coronation before he walks away.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Jack, you've you've done a lot of work over there with the with uh, w- w- with the royal government and things like that, and been involved in uh, uh you know just meeting different people and things like that. What 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 do you make of all this?
5: You know, you know, the guys have made some great points. The, the British people, is, you know, again, as we all know, are historically extraordinarily resilient people. Uh, they've, they've been through many crises, much worse than this. They will get through this. Uh, there is a need for real leadership. Um, you know, we haven't mentioned that, you know, within the Labour Party, right now they're in the minority uh, in Parliament. Uh, the very left-wing leader of the Labor Party, Jeremy Corbyn, he's being roundly criticized by his party because they feel he did not do enough and did not show leadership on this. Uh, Corbyn, uh, you know, was one of those who believes, again, as Dan and Don were both saying, that, you know, the the elites knew best. Uh, He's an old sort of radical socialist going back to the 70s. But, you know, the, the... You know, the temple's going to fall on him probably as well. He may lose his leadership of the minority party. Uh, So, you know, we are still going to be in for a uh, a bumpy ride, Uh, again, because there are so many unknowns. But if everyone just kind of takes a collective, you know, deep breath, you know, we we will get through this. You know, the British will still be an ally of the United States. They will still be a, a very important member of NATO. They're still in the United Nations. They're in all the other organizations, you know, that are, you know, that go on around the world. Uh, so, you know, we will get there. Uh, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm not ready to, you know, jump off the highest bridge because of, the, of a surprise. But the point made by Dan, I think, James, is the most important of all of this, simply that the elites lost touch, you know, in, in the U.K. and in Europe, the elites lost touch with the will of the people and now they're paying a price they don't like it they're not sure what to do about it but you know democracy spoke it was a clear uh victory for the leave camp uh and that's um you know that that's that's democracy and let's let's get on with it let's tackle some of the problems and uh you know move on rather than uh you know dr- drowned in the sorrow uh over a vote that uh, again the. You know, a lot of the uh, elites
3: didn't like. Fair Jack, name. can I ask you? I want to put Jack on the. Uh, do I have time, Tim, to ask him yeah. a question? Go ahead. Go ahead.
2: Uh, uh, Jim, I'm I want to I won't, I'll, I'll cut off I, now. I, 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 but, but I want to say thank you for getting a little put in the on. Yes. I to cut off
4: now. Yes, I appreciate it, Don. Okay. Thanks for being with us. No,
2: no. no both of you guys, uh, again, everything. Uh, every time I listen to you, I learn something.
4: Thank you. <laughs> thank, <laughs> thank you, well, what you Don. Says, uh, Uh, okay dan go ahead and jump in there let
3: me let me throw a monkey wrench into your thinking england you may be looking and i'll put myself in the same camp we may be looking at england through rose-colored glasses because the england of today is not the england of our parents it is not the England of Churchill. It is more ethnic and racially diverse than it's ever been in its country, its history. And will that racial diversity, the, if you would, globalization of the country through the results of the EU, make it more difficult for them to succeed?
5: Well, no, it's a, it's a great question. I think it's one... That you know they wrestle with every day over there, and I certainly accept the point that you know it's not the it's not the country of you know our parents' generation of you know of Churchill and the like, and you know certainly in the you know the decades that you know I've been going back and forth, you know you can certainly see the the growing angst in cities like you know London and Manchester, Birmingham that you know that have large Muslim populations, the assimilation uh, you know, that one hopes would happen, you know, regardless of where the immigrant comes from, uh, you know, has not fully taken place. As you know, there's been some horrific um, uh, attacks on Muslims in in the UK. I, I was thinking of the beheading of, uh, of a young soldier on the streets of London uh, a, a few years back uh, and the like. So you know, the, the British haven't figured this out. And, you know, I, I think during the Cameron years, uh, you know, you see this struggle of how to respond and react uh, to the, you know, to the changing demographics. Uh, so I, I, I take the point fully. Um, I was reading, I'll, I'll just throw out one brief statistic, uh, the, the problems the Brits are having. When I was over there, uh, a, a few weeks back I, I remember reading I think it was in the Guardian newspaper That only one in eight Of the jihadists Who use their British passport Who leave Britain To go to fight in the Middle East You know for ISIS On uh, Syria or Iraq But when they come back And the British have the laws It's not a question of lack of laws But right now the British uh, Sort of legal system is able to track down and, you know, sort of throw the book at uh, about 15% of those that have gone out, gone to the Middle East, uh, embraced jihadism, come back, want to carry on the fight in England. Uh, and so there's, it's not a question of laws. The laws are on the books. But the, the you know, the difficulty of tracking these people down, bringing them to justice is among the many problems that the Brits have, and I think you're right. The, you know, sort of the, the, the man on the street looks at what's happening and says probably what you just did. You know, th- this is not the England I grew up in, and I've got real problems with it.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So do you think there's a possibility that one of the casualties in a positive sense of this, extricating of the British people out of the EU will be a greater emphasis of assimilation if they're going to stay. Well, I hope so. Um, you know,
5: Cameron it didn't receive much attention here, but, you know, after five trips already this year to London, you know, I able to find and see some things that maybe don't make the news here. David Cameron, after his election... Uh, His victory last May, uh, in recent months, Dan, he has been trying to quietly put together policies that take on the question you just raised of how to do, you know, within the U.K., of course, you know, how to bring to justice, uh, you know, those that, you know, want to bring the fight to, you know, the British streets, but at the same time, uh, you know, trying to find governmental policies at the national level. You know, that help address these problems, uh, including, you know, ways to show that, you know, immigrants are welcome in British society, provided that they recognize that it's a privilege, not a right, and that, you know, they will be welcome if they choose to obey the laws uh, of the UK. And if they don't, you know, then the British government, I think, again, under Cameron. Uh, you know, has been looking at ways uh, through its uh, security services, uh, through its Home Office, to uh, you know, to at least you know bring to justice those that you know just d- don't want to uh, follow British law, but rather you know choose to embrace you know Sharia law.
2: Yeah, the other
3: thing yeah, I've been curious to give you because we I guess we got just a few minutes back. But I, I would be curious to your thoughts about, about continuing that, the dialogue we're having. Um, I, I've, I've read recently that there are as many as 80 Sharia courts in, in the U.K. Yes. And I, I think, there's, it's, as I have written about in the United States, I, I, I was one of the first people in the media to break the, the story about the Sharia court in, in Arlington, Texas, which eventually got shut down. Um but, you know, either it's British law or it's not. And so these three of I think one are going to have to be closed. The ghettos are going to have to be, the, the no-go zones are going to have to be destroyed. And people are going to have to go into neighborhoods and assimilate into the British culture just as they need in, in many areas in, in France and Spain and Italy and Germany, uh, across, across Europe. Um you cannot have, um our, our, um uh, our great american president abraham lincoln said in a speech a house divided it against itself can never stand yeah. these countries cannot survive divided between muslim and the rest of the culture and so either they're going to have to go back or they're going to have to assimilate and maybe this maybe that's part of the spin-off of this vote last thursday well it's
5: a, it, it's a great point that you raise not only in you know the situation in in the UK, but also uh, in Italy. I, I, I've been in Italy a few times this year, and uh, you know they've had an influx, by their accounting, of at least four hundred thousand migrants. Uh, right. Uh, then mm-hmm. you know they, receives much much less attention than you know the even larger numbers as you were saying in Germany. Uh,
2: but you mm-hmm. know the
5: demographics are going to get very interesting across Europe, and as we we're talking in the UK as well, and the demographics very simply are the percentage of those who identify themselves as Muslim in Germany, in France, in Italy, and in the UK, you know, know, is increasing literally every year, Uh, and, you know, I think that we have only begun to see the tip of the iceberg of the implications of that, you know, for security in those countries, uh, for their culture, for the way they live you know, how they think of themselves. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh,
5: so these, you know, this is a problem that, you know, is not going to go away. And it's quite clear that, you know, all the governments there are really struggling with this. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's part of what the British public tried to say in their vote, that, you know, you guys have got to find better answers, because we're, we're sure not happy and content or, you know, in the thought that, you know the best answers are coming out of Brussels and the
3: EU headquarters. I think the uncomfortableness that the that the central and Western European governments are experiencing is political correctness. They are conflicted about what to do about what's happened for forty years and and now it may be changing and political correctness is one of those issues that is governed in the EU, and and has gotten greater and greater power and influence. And now it it may hopefully be on its way out, but I I can see how the elites and other people are having a real conflicted problem of how can we walk away from what we spent 40 years of our lives trying to bring and uh, we're letting these British people start an avalanche. And, uh, you know, I, I, I finished the piece that I just wrote, There was a big sign everywhere on billboards and newspapers and on street corners in England, France, England and Scotland and Ireland and Wales that said Independence Day, June the 24th. I suggest there's a possibility that there may be at least eight nations or more who are looking for their new Independence Day, and the ninth nation is the United States looking for its new Independence Day on November the 8th.
5: Great point. I, I fully agree that, you know, we may see more, uh, you know, this may be a house of cards or a row of dominoes. that really starts to, you know, to tumble. Uh, clearly the French, the Italians, the Dutch are really unhappy with at least parts of the EU. And, you know, Dan, it may, it may be a great column in the future to look at, you know, what I would uh, trace back, among other things, to a lack of really strong leadership in any of these nations. Uh, Renzi in Italy... You know, he's, you know, his party just lost local elections, uh, a land in France. Uh, you know, despite the way they try to deal with, you know, the terror attacks, uh, he is still wildly unpopular. Uh, Merkel was under deep uh, criticism for her policy on immigration. Uh, we've seen what has happened to David Cameron. So, among many other things, I, I think we're in an era, certainly across Europe, where. You know, strong and reasonable voices on all these issues are very hard to find. The people are figuring that out, and I would not at all be surprised if, you know, the numbers you just put out in terms of other nations on the continent, you know, that may say enough is enough, uh, you know, that your, your number could be very close to right.
4: Well, before we let everybody go, uh, Dr. Jack, how do we get a hold of you online, pick up the book, all that?
5: Well, James, uh, you know, through you, thank you for mentioning the book. Um, I don't have a website yet. I'm in the process of building one. Uh, But, you know, those with questions certainly can, uh, you know, reach me through you, and I I will get back to them immediately. And the book, of course, is on Amazon, and authors like to sell books, as Dan knows. Uh, So I hope people will... We'll, we'll give it a look, because it really is an attempt, as I said at the start, to you know, tell the story of the things that are happening in the Middle East, that part of the world, yep. why it's important for us, why we should care, and what we might be able to do about it. So thank you for the
4: mention, and you know, I hope the folks will look on Amazon. Now, Dan, how do we get a hold of you, my friend? My
3: books are available at Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble. My fourth book, the sequel to the trilogy, is in edit at the moment hopefully we'll be out sometime this fall uh my book website is danperkins.guru and as always the foundation is songs and stories for and by the way jim we are in now in the same deal i think you have with amazon we're at amazon smiles account because we're a 501c3 yes. so you can shop on amazon and Make a contribution to Songs and Stories.
4: Now, b- before we before we let everybody go, explain Songs and Stories uh, for, for the benefit of folks that, that haven't heard about this. And, Jack, uh, if, if you haven't heard about this, listen up, because this is a heck of an organization. Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, I'd love to
3: hear about it. Songs and Stories for Soldiers is a, is a 501c3 that virtually 100% of every dollar we raise goes to the program for the veterans. Uh, we have built a, an MP3 based delivery system, uh, off of a website, songsandstoriesforsoldiers.us. The content on, on that website is 3 million songs in 15 different categories, 100,000 audiobooks in 25 categories, 30,000 old time radio shows, and 4 8 hour sleep audios. All of this is available to the, to the veteran through an MP3 device that we give them for free, which is an MP3 player, 8 gigs of storage, earbuds, USB cable charger, and a flash memory stick. We give it to them for free. We're in 37 hospitals across the United States, veterans facilities, outpatients, homeless shelters, uh, warrior transition units, and we're working right now focused on traumatic brain injury and, and really the PTSD that goes with that and also the side effects which is sleep deprivation and suicide our sleep deprivation is a huge huge problem the department of defense says that maybe as many as a third of the returning veterans from the various combats are diagnosed with post traumatic stress disorder as we work in the hospitals it's it's a very big problem and the problem with 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 post-traumatic stress disorder is sleep deprivation and what happens is the soldiers are not able to get down to the REM level of sleep where both the body and soul can heal our program has the player we give them is has two novels and it has an eight-hour sleep audio there are four more sleep audios that are designed to help the soldier get down to REM level sleep and heal and um, as i said there are three trustees uh, none of us take any salary or any benefits. All the travel expenses are paid for out of our pocket, so 100% of the money that we raise goes to buy MP3 players for the soldiers. And we've got a lot more work to do, but we're talking to many organizations who want to become corporate sponsors. And we just uh, we just got a, an arrangement with the Western Territory of the Salvation Army that has. Their The Western Territory is Alaska, Hawaii, Oregon, Washington, California, Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, and Montana. Hundreds of hospitals, thousands of vet centers. So we're really excited about working with them because they spend a lot of time in the VA hospitals talking and meeting with soldiers. So uh, the website, again, Songs and Stories for Soldiers. We're, we are in the business to try and accomplish one thing, We know that the nighttime is the most difficult time for soldiers, whether they're in a hospital, whether they're at home, or whether they're on the street. That is when the night terrors come of fear and anger and frustration and anxiety and loneliness all come. And we're there with our MP3 player to help them, one soldier at a time, make it safely to dawn. That's what we're about, Doctor. Uh, That's
5: tremendous. Deserves everyone's support.
4: Now, uh, gentlemen, I appreciate you being with us. We will talk to you guys, uh, next week. I'll talk to you next week. Dr. Jack and, uh, Dan, uh, uh, I understand tomorrow is our, uh, is our last Wednesday of the month. I was, I know that you'll be joining me in IQ, hopefully. And, uh, that, <laughs> he's that, avoiding that, me. He's avoiding that, me. That, that should be fun. <laughs> and, uh, thank you, gentlemen, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. you. Take care. Thank you much. Dan Perkins and Don Mazella, and, of course, our good friend, Dr. Jack Caravelli. If you want to get a hold of us on TuneIn, you can do so. And uh, also, Facebook is...
0: ...warns that these filters may move or break, which may lead to heart or lung damage. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
1: Lucky?